Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today's show is one of our postscript podcasts in which we invite authors to react to contemporary political events that engage their scholarship. Two blockbuster cases came down in June of 2022. The Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade and New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin substantially expanded Second Amendment rights and limited the power of states to regulate concealed carry of firearms. This has affected thousands of Americans who have had their laws overturned. Bruin also radically changes the method by which federal judges evaluate firearms law, and now lawmakers, law enforcers, and federal courts must figure out what Bruin means and how to apply it. We have two remarkable scholars of the Second Amendment and firearms law here today to help us understand how courts are ruling on these laws made by elected officials in the states. Jacob Charles is Associate Professor of Law at Pepperdine Caruso School of Law. Professor Charles is a constitutional lawyer focused on the Second Amendment and firearms law. Before joining the faculty at Pepperdine, he served as the inaugural executive director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University School of Law. He has a terrific new piece coming out in the Duke Law Journal called The Dead Hand of a Silent Past, Bruin, Gun Rights, and the Shackles of History that I'll link to the show notes. Jake combines really ambitious academic scholarship and law journals with public-facing work for outlets like the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times slate. I could go on. And besides being a great friend to this podcast, he's been quoted in the New York Times, CNN, NPR. Drew Stevenson is the Wayne Fisher Research Professor at Texas State College of Law in Houston. Professor Stevenson joined the faculty at South Texas College of Law, Houston, in 2018. 2003, after a law career that included practicing as a legal aid lawyer in Connecticut and also serving as an assistant attorney general for the state of Connecticut. His publications cover topics ranging from criminal law to civil procedure, with an emphasis on the intersection of law with economics and linguistic theory. His articles have been cited in leading academic journals and treatises by federal and state appellate courts and in recent briefs to the United States Supreme Court. His current research focus is firearms law and policy. Jake, welcome back. Drew, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to the two of you. You, you the, the things that you say uh, on uh, whatever we're calling Twitter these days and elsewhere is just has been really helpful to me, and I'm, I'm excited to share the conversation and go a little bit deeper uh, with this audience. You know, a lot of people think of individual rights to carry or own firearms as part of some sort of long-standing legal tradition, uh, you know, protected by the Second Amendment. But the history is is really more complicated. You know, until the 21st century, the Supreme Court really didn't focus on the Second Amendment as anything outside of a right of the states to have militias. But that changed uh, with the Heller case in 2008. Uh, the District of Columbia had banned registered registering handguns and had required guns in the home to be disassembled or non-functional with a trigger lock. Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, writing for a 5-4 majority, found that law unconstitutional. He argued that the first clause of the Second Amendment that referenced the militia is a prefatory clause that 
doesn't limit what he insisted was the operative clause. He claimed the Second Amendment should be read in a manner that gives greatest effect to the plain meaning it would have had at the time it was written. And he decided that that meant that the Constitution guaranteed an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of quote unquote confrontation. And he included language about the type of laws that state and federal governments had passed before 2008. And he also wrote that the opinion quote, should be not be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale. Blah. Okay. That's I'm trying really hard to make it brief. So we've had Heller. That was 2008. Uh, and now we're living in a different world in Brune. Uh, and though this happened in 2022 and it got a lot of attention, Dobbs got more attention. And so I think it would be useful, Drew, if you wouldn't mind uh, just reminding everybody what happened in Brune and you know, what does it change in terms of how judges are supposed to evaluate whether a law is constitutional or not under the Second Amendment. Okay, thank you. Um, after Heller... A um, the there were a lot of unanswered questions, and um, in the years following that decision, the federal courts sort of um, coalesced around a consensus of applying some kind of intermediate two-step scrutiny. In, in other words, it was a balancing test of the individual's um, right to have uh, firearms for self-defense versus the state's legitimate interest in public safety and security. And um, so the, the biggest change from Brune is, uh, is that, is that the uh, majority rejected that sort of two-step methodology or balancing test and um, instead uh, adopted a what they called a text history and tradition uh, text that the... Um, uh, they would only uphold uh, firearms regulations that were consistent with um, the history and uh, the text of the Second Amendment and the history. So they recognized that there were some uh, there was some gun control in the founding era. There were restrictions on where you could have guns, some prohibitions on who could have them, and <clears throat> so the sort of the upshot was that in Bruin, they said you need to find some sort of historical analog um, <clears throat> from the founding era. It's an, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about what counts as the founding era. And as <clears throat> with any area of talking about analogies, how close the analogy has to be or how close it has to fit. So um, in terms of the actual statute that uh, Brune overturned in New York, it was not terribly significant. It was a permitting procedure for public carry that essentially gave local law enforcement um, some uh, um, discretion if they knew that, okay, this is a character who's been a suspect in 10 crimes in the last year, even though we haven't been able to charge him with anything, that they could deny the permit or require the person to show a good reason for needing a gun. And <clears throat> essentially the courts, they could have made it narrow and just said that gives too much discretion to individual local sheriff's departments and so forth. Um, they seemed to say that it was okay for a state to have permitting and licensing requirements 
that um, where as long as you met some sort of universal eligibility requirements that you would be automatically approved for the license and permit, but not a case where you had to kind of convince your local police department to let you um, have a permit. So that was the the holding. And I'm going to let Jake talk about the aftermath because he studied it in so much detail. But the aftermath has been a mess. Um, <clears throat> essentially, the test, uh, part of that is anytime the Supreme Court announces a new test, there's a period of adjustment and courts trying to figure out exactly what the parameters are and how to apply it. But this particular test is pretty um, confusing and unworkable uh, from uh, for several different reasons. The um, and so there has been uh, some confusion about that and um, in the aftermath. The other thing that I want to say here is that we had some concurring opinions in the case that um, make it a little unclear what the Supreme Court will do with future cases. Um, I, I would almost call Bruin a fragile holding because we had two justices who said that they were signing on with the understanding that it kept that sort of categorical exclusion from Heller uh, that you mentioned. And then Justice Alito wrote a concurrence saying that he thought that the court was deciding only that very narrow issue that I just talked about, about how much um, unfettered discretion the police have. So there is some uncertainty about what, what they're going to do next. Oh, thank you so much, Drew. And actually, I've heard a lot of people explain the two-step test, and and that's my favorite, the briefest, the clearest, and the most quotable for people to just understand the balancing that was done and the, and the shift. So thank you. And, and we'll return to those concurrences. I, I think that's an amazingly important point about just mm, how perhaps the majority opinion isn't exactly uh, something that everyone will sign on to. Um, Jake, after Heller, federal courts found over 5,000 statutes to be constitutional. Uh, you know, So even though those statutes limited firearms or ammunition in some way, uh, so, so there was this idea that somehow the courts were able to respond to Heller in, in fairly predictable ways. I'm not sure you'll completely agree with that, but you can you can correct me if you don't think so. W- what's happened in the wake of Bruin in the federal courts? You know, how is it similar or different to the world that we found after Heller? Yeah, so in the immediate aftermath of Heller, um, courts were fairly cautious in analyzing challenges to existing laws that had been on the books in some cases for decades. So we didn't see a lot of laws invalidated in the couple years after Heller. And as you suggested, even in the decade and a half from Heller until Bruin, there were still not an overwhelming number of laws that had been struck down. Um, Laws regulating certain types of weapons, laws regulating certain licensing laws, uh, certain people who can have weapons, certain places weapons can go. And if laws in all of those categories to varying extents were upheld. What we're seeing now in the immediate aftermath of Bruin is something that is completely different. And um, and it is, I think, a mix of um, courts seeing that Bruin is um, is construing the historical record a lot uh, more narrowly. 
Um, and so as a result, when courts are, are required to look to historical tradition in order to uphold a law today, they're demanding pretty, uh, pretty narrow specificity and looking for what might be an analog to today's law. And so lots of courts have accordingly struck down laws um, that were never struck down um, after Heller um, at any level of court, including laws that had been on the, de- on the books for decades and that had really never thought to raise serious constitutional uh, challenges, or at least not ones that had, um, had, succe- had succeeded um, after Heller. And um, I'm just going to interrupt you yeah, for one please. second and just just clarify historical analogs for some of the people who are not like deep in the weeds here. So so part of what the court was saying is that you need to find not just a law that says concealed carry is a problem, New York. You need to find one that says that you would do such a permitting regime, like the continuum of just how specific the analog has to be is what seems to be at at issue, whereas Heller was not asking for that. Heller wasn't saying an analog. Heller was saying, uh, back in the day, the people, quote unquote, believed that they had this right, and we're going to interpret it. Now, Bruin is saying, you know, you have to find us a law. Um, and so, so just just to clarify that for everybody. So, sorry, Jake. Keep, yes, keep going. No, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, wh- one thing that's interesting um, that may be interesting uh, to listeners is the, the debate that this sets up between um, those who are in favor of originalist interpretation, which looks to the original public meaning of the constitutional text at the time it was ratified, and those in favor of what's often called a traditionalist um, theory of constitutional interpretation that takes practices and traditions to be in part constitutive of constitutional meaning so that on a traditionalist interpretation, um, something can be constitutional if it's justified by reference to historical tradition, even if it was not within the original public understanding when the text was ratified. Um, There's been a lot of scholarly debate um, among those camps after Bruin as to which camp it falls in. I I think that it is there are some things in Bruin that are inconsistent with an original public meaning account, uh, because, as you said, historical tradition can justify modern laws. And it's not always clear that that's only when they are telling us about what the original meaning was in 1791. But but I think more importantly, what you're getting at is this the really difficult question that Bruin did not answer and that lower courts are struggling with is what does it mean to find a historical tradition or an analog to a modern law? Um, Bruin said it does not have to be a historical twin. That's not required. Um, but it said it has to be more than kind of just generally the same. There's got to be some kind of fit. And it gave two metrics that courts can rely on when they're looking for the relevant similarity that's required in analogical reasoning more generally. Bruin said it can uh, courts can look to the how uh, a modern and uh, precursor law regulated the right to bear arms. Um, and what was the justification, the why for how a modern law and a precursor law regulated um, weapons in public or weapons uh, generally? And so th- with those two metrics, um, lower courts are applying them in different ways. Uh, they're asking different questions. They're looking to different kinds of laws as analogous or not. And I think one of the, the key components is it's, it's not you can't look at Bruin and look at these lower court decisions and say one of them is following Bruin and the other one is not. Um, you can reach completely different outcomes, both being faithful uh, to Bruin's test because it doesn't say anything about the level of specificity or generality at which you're supposed to look to the historical record besides just can't be way too broad, can't be way or doesn't need to be way too general. 
uh, or basically specific. And lower courts um, are kind of all over the map um, and, and all reaching decisions that are inconsistent with one another, not just on the outcomes in these cases, but on how to apply the test uh, um, in particular. No, that's so helpful and 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 pretty generous in some ways because I, I you know the idea of a historical record, the idea of an original public meaning, and the idea that we could even find it is something that's questioned by by many historians themselves because what how Brun talked about history was as if it presented itself and uh, you know Jake used to be associated with uh, or you're still associated with the Duke Firearms uh, uh, initiative and they have cataloged all of these laws and New York State used some of that when they were trying to defend their laws and I think they felt they did a pretty good job of showing both the how and the, the why in some ways. And that law was a hundred years old. So it sort of could claim its own sort of, um, you know, longevity and traditionalism, uh, you know, as somebody who spent uh, a decade of her life pouring through, you know, Madison's papers and Farrand and the rest, there's a lot of contradictory things said in the founding. Um, and there are two foundings because we also have the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments and the complete restructuring of the constitution after the civil war. So that's tough too. And to go back to something Drew said, that also seemed at issue where, where some of the justices have more of a commitment to seeing these two foundings as, as equivalent, as equally important. And then that creates problems. Um, Jake, let me ask you and, and Drew too. So specifically, what does this mean? The only case I know is United States versus Rahimi, okay, because it's so public. Uh, a case of a person who had beat up a woman in a parking lot, fired off a gun, threatened to shoot uh, the person uh, if she told, and then there was a restraining order on him, which under federal law means that he can have his guns and ammunition taken away. He committed a bunch of crimes. The police found the restraining order and his guns in his apartment. So, uh, and the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit had originally said, yes, he can be convicted. That that law is just fine. And then after Brune, they wrote a new decision saying, oh, actually, no, he, he has the right to do that. So uh, I know that in at least one case, <laughs> this has had uh, you know a great impact, and that case is going to the Supreme Court. But I think it's hard for many of us uh, who are not reading these things the way you to Ahar, to know what does this look like at, in the cases that we're not reading? And so are there some trends there that you can share that you think are important? Yeah, sure. I can, I can hop in first. Um, so I did um, in the article that you generously mentioned, um, sort of a, an empirical analysis. Um, I use the words empirical analysis very lightly. I, I counted cases um, and categorized them um, for the it's first empirical. year. Of, yeah, it's empirical. Uh, there are no regressions in it. Um, so the uh, for the first year of decisions after Bruin in federal court, where court, courts were issuing opinions, um, there were a little over 300 of these cases. And I counted the different claims in the cases um, specifically, and I got to 375 claims in which a Second Amendment claim was adjudicated by a federal court after Bruin. And what I found was, was pretty surprising to me, and that was that... Um, out of all of those cases, there were um, 44 claims that succeeded. So about 11 
of the 11%, 11.5% of the claims succeeded. Um, but a surprising amount of ones in civil cases, so 40% of the claims in civil cases succeeded. So these are lawsuits that are brought by most often in the aftermath of Bruin gun rights um, advocacy organizations. Um, so who, who challenged tons of uh, of laws across the country in the aftermath of Bruin. And they have a 40% success rate of having at least some claims in different categories um, prevail. And so just to give kind of um, a taste of what some of those look like. So we have had um, courts strike down um, age limits for carrying or buying weapons, uh, laws that restricted 18 to 20 year olds from um, getting handgun par- carry permits or from buying weapons. Um, we've had uh, courts that have said that uh, the government can't restrict those under felony indictment from acquiring new weapons. Uh, as you mentioned, um, Rahimi said that the federal law barring those with domestic violence restraining orders. Um, that uh, was not only a Fifth Circuit ruling, but other district courts had said the same after Bruin. Um, courts have struck down uh, state level assault weapon bans and large capacity magazine bans. Um, they have said that those who are unlawful users of uh, controlled substances can't be prohibited from possessing firearms. Um, the Ninth Circuit just recently said that Hawaii can't ban butterfly knives um, under the Second Amendment. And we're seeing um, even more disagreement, I think, as we see these cases reach the uh, appellate level. And uh, just to give a taste of that, there's the Fifth Circuit decision in Rahimi. The Fifth Circuit also just uh, a week or so ago issued another opinion striking down the federal law barring um, unlawful drug users from possessing guns. And then um, the Eleventh Circuit uh, had originally said that Florida's post-Parkland law um, that restricted those uh, under 21 from buying firearms was constitutional. And then the 11th Circuit uh, later vacated that case and took it uh, to the whole 11th Circuit. There's not been a decision there yet, but usually the court doesn't do that to agree with what the original appellate panel said. So it's likely that that law is going to be struck down as well. And the fact that we're seeing um, sort of all of these cases not just reach the appellate level, but disagreements within and among uh, appellate uh, courts is a sign, I think, that courts are really struggling with how to apply Bruin's test. Drew, you said that they were finding it unworkable. Um, what, what is so unworkable about this? Is there something that we haven't said? I, 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 I took note of, of you uh, saying that earlier. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so... Part of it is, um, you know, there's that famous quote from, uh, I think, Gordon Wood, uh, history is a foreign country, right? Um, That we always, um, any type of historical question, we, the further back you go, the more limited our record is. And frankly, the more we approach it with through a filter of a lot of our cultural myths and nostalgia and uh, and narratives and things like that, that... um, and and part of it is um, the ultimately it's an argument from silence, right? So it's saying uh, if you can't find an analogous um, law in the founding era, then uh, then you can't have the modern law. And on the surface, that just sounds like okay, we're going to kind of. I mean, it would be bad enough that that merely was going to freeze the laws in the modern era, but um, it. It's basically saying um, if you can show that the burden is on um, the government to show that that a law existed instead of, for example, putting the burden on the party to show that it doesn't. That's very significant. Um, 
there's um, an incomplete record to some extent uh, to, to be honest. A lot of people are, don't know this, but we don't have a perfect record of what all the laws and statutes and local ordinances were in the founding era. And, um, and or how what courts thought that those laws meant. Um, and then it also, <clears throat> Brune doesn't really account for a whole bunch of other things that are the context surrounding a law. So for example, I mean, apart from the old adage that, well, they didn't have assault rifles in the founding era, or they mostly had muskets and rifle, uh, rifles, single shot rifles. Um, but there's also just questions about like, Gun, how many gun dealers there were. Um, the guns weren't being mass produced in factories. Um, uh, the uh, How many guns were imported and were subjected to import tariffs and, and things like that. Um, and just the prevalence of, prevalence of ownership, um, the prevalence of use. So there's, it's hard to find, for example, founding era gun crime apart from dueling. So all of this stuff of the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Um, You didn't usually have to worry about a burglar or um, somebody accosting you on the street using a firearm as their weapon of choice. And the firearms they had were not terrible. were not the first resort for self-defense because they were clunky and took long time to load and, and so forth. So a lot of the kind of interpersonal crime violence wasn't done. And the court doesn't allow for any of that. So it's not just that our legal traditions have changed. It's that um, the the whole environment has um, has changed. Well, and it's uh, that's so well put and so helpful, Drew. Uh, uh, particularly about records. Anybody who's done this work knows uh, just how incomplete and how soiled and moth-eaten, et cetera, the records could be. And also the records are highly selective. So much of what the people believed and what the people did in these periods is actually not necessarily in uh, the kind of treatises, for example, that are often quoted in Supreme Court uh, opinions uh, like Blackstone or William Role. And in addition, there has been arguments saying like, you know, your Second Amendment should only apply to the types of guns that were available in 1791 and 1868. And that itself would would end much of the controversy because you can't reload an 1868 weapon to kill mass uh, numbers large numbers of people in a mass, you know, shooting, but that, that, that ship sailed, that doesn't seem to be part of the originalist argument. Um, and Drew also what you said calls into question the kind of laws and the kinds of crimes. So for example, domestic violence wasn't a crime in 1791 or 1868. In fact, laws allowed husbands under coverture to in fact uh, admonish their wives, to guide their behavior, quote unquote. Now they weren't allowed to kill them, they but they were allowed to rape them until well into the 20th century did all states agree that there was such a crime as marital rape. It was seen as an entitlement of the husband. So We don't actually have analogous laws when it comes to something like domestic violence or 
um, attacking queer people because in controlled fact controlled substances. Yeah. I don't Control. want to interrupt, but but no, please that's do. One the, that's one of the laws that's being challenged right now is um, the the federal statute about um, <clears throat> you know, drug addicts or users of controlled substances, and we didn't really have. There were prohibitions on selling alcohol to native tribes and, and so forth like that. But we didn't um, really have those laws. And it would, and, but I'm, it's, so we have a lot of kind of um, gun laws that are intertwined um, with other laws. There's a challenge. One of the cases going to the Supreme court right now is about what they call the ghost gun um, ban, which is really about the rule about putting serial numbers on um firearms and if a manufacturer sells you like ikea style an unassembled firearm and let's say it's missing a few parts um does but otherwise it's you're 80 and 90 percent of the way there to having a firearm is that a firearm and should it have to have a serial number on it um and so in the founding era well there there's an analogy that in the um revolutionary war they they were um putting stamping numbers on guns so that they could track which ones belonged to the military and which ones were privately owned ones that sold uh, militia members had brought with them and it was to, to reduce theft is that analogous enough and that's kind of that's a nice analogy example of the analogy problem i wanted to give an example of what you said about the inc incomplete record um, and pick one founding father, John Dickinson, right? So John Dickinson was the president of the first Congress. He was very influential in the years leading up to the Revolutionary War. Um, uh, he was a lawyer, and um, and so his writing, he had a lot of influence um, uh, on the other founding fathers. And his personal papers from the Revolutionary War era and the Constitutional Convention era are still not publicly available. Right. Like they're not not only are they not searchable on the Internet, they're not even published in book form. There's there's a few historians that are still working on publishing the private papers. Of, maybe there's a big discussion about what the Second Amendment meant in John Dickinson's writings and personal letters between him and James Madison. And no one knows right now except a handful of historians who have the archives. And so that's an example. And there's a lot of founding fathers like that. And what we do know from the convention is based on several people's handwritten notes. So we're saying that what happens in this conversation, we'll just look at my notes. I can show them to you right now. And it's your notes, the two of your notes, and then we're going to write it and we're going to say that's what happened. But that's not necessarily what happened because I haven't taken down a transcript. I've just taken down what I thought was important. And I think those people who have gone through Farrand, as I have, know that there's really no discussion of great substance on the Second Amendment. And what's there seems very, very damning uh, to any interpretation involving individual rights. But it's it's hard for me. I, look, I never used to be cynical. I, I was kind of a very um, uh, starry-eyed uh, American political thought uh, lover of the Supreme Court. And I've kind of gotten to the point at which I don't think it matters if they've got Dickinson's notes or not, because I think people are just cherry picking what they want. And, you know, to go back to something that you said at the beginning, Drew, this is an unworkable, but it's also a <laughs> very flexible uh, standard that's open to great interpretation. You know, who are the people 
Are they just the people who were in the newspaper? Because actually, that's not the people. Are we talking about letters? Are those going to now be, you know, if I wrote to my grandfather and talked about my guns, is that the people? It's it's really uh, seems as if people are just have an opinion about what they want in terms of policy, and then they're making up things. Again, I'm being very cynical here, and this has nothing to do with the U.S. Constitution, the words of the U.S. Constitution, the intent of the framers. Um, again, that's very, very cynical. Um, I, I want to ask you a couple of other questions, but mostly it's a kind of a what should we be doing uh, set of questions. You know, what should teachers be telling students right now? Uh, what should journalists do you think be reporting on right now what should citizens be watching like as as insiders what what is it that you think the wider public uh, and the people who influence the wider public sh- should be pushing out besides everything that you've already said which has been incredibly helpful uh so just to pick up um on the thread that you were discussing, one of the, it is hard to uh, not be cynical um, these days, and especially when you see the court adopting a more historically focused methodology, not just in Second Amendment cases, but in lots of other cases, and yet at the same time seeming to have disdain for professional historians and their expertise in these kind of cases. In Bruin, the court says, you know, we're not asking a historical question when we're looking at uh, historical tradition. We're asking a legal question about the legal relevance of history. Um, and, and and while Bruin itself doesn't uh, express in its words the disdain for her historical expertise, it nonetheless kind of dismissed the amicus briefs and the scholarship of many historians um, who said this kind of law was um, was consistent with historical tradition and who said what you all have been saying, which is mandating an exclusively historical test um, for court cases that have to be decided on really quick timelines is a very, very complicated um, thing where you have to uh, answer A or B. And you can't say, you know what, the history doesn't tell us. Uh, maybe the history doesn't have an answer here. There's kind of no room um, within Bruins test or court cases more generally for us to say it's a tie, right? There, there, isn't, uh, there isn't a good answer from the historical record. Um, so, but in terms of like what, uh, what people can be doing nowadays, um, and I'll, I'll focus, maybe I'll just focus on teaching um, since I'm thinking that through, I taught a second uh, amendment seminar last semester uh, that was uh, grappling with um, really a lot of uncertainty about Bruin's test and I'm teaching it in this fall and we have a little bit more um, a little bit more evidence of the uncertainty in lower courts now um, after this summer and uh, a few more court cases um, and we have an indication that I think the court is beginning to see um, what its test created because it agreed to hear the Rahimi case. And um, I think myself and, and, you know, and other core watchers think it, it's not going to take the case to say the Fifth Circuit was correct in the way that it adjudicated the case. Um, I think that the court is going to say something about how to better understand Bruin's test. And so when I'm trying to convey uh, the message of what um, people should be focusing on to my students, and, and I think a public issue too, more broadly, is there's a chance right now to show the court the limits of um, historically focused methodology that at least doesn't make room for broader questions about the intellectual currents and the intellectual thought 
um, and the values that informed the reasons for regulating in the founding period and in 1868. And one of the things that you both touched on is this domestic violence concept. Um, and it's just kind of one of the many ways in which Bruin's demand for historical analogs can be problematic. You know, we, 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 might, we might not see historical regulations on some issue because, you know, there was no need to regulate for it. There wasn't a lot of gun violence happening, right? There might've been technical reasons. Um, it might've been not feasible. There wasn't a record keeping system that could have been easily accessed for background checks, for instance, or this is gets to the Rahimi case. There might just not have been a thought among governing elites that there were people who needed protection from uh, violence with weapons. Um, and I think that most accurately conveys the problems with the Fifth Circuit's approach, even if it was being faithful to Bruin and how it decided that case, um, because those those values are informing the laws that got passed at the time. And, you know, there were no women in legislatures. Um, there were no black men um, in legislatures when these laws were being passed. Um, and so, of course, uh, the, the values that the founders had are going to influence the laws that they enacted. Um, so kind of conveying to, to students and the interested public uh, the ways that they have the power right now to be highlighting the limits of um, a historically focused test at the same time teaching the doctrine. Right? Here's what courts are saying. Um, here's how we're understanding it. If you're litigating a case, you can't go into court and say uh, the Supreme Court got it wrong. Uh, end of story. To work within the within the method. And I think there are some ways to work within Bruin's method and still allow states to have some leeway for regulating weapons in the public interest. And one of those ways is to um, to raise that level of generality, to not demand um, a, a law that regulated the um, possession of guns by domestic abusers in the founding era, but to say, look, how did they treat um questions about dangerous people possessing guns, right? That's consistent with Bruin's method. Um, that's looking to historical tradition, but it's asking the question at a level that is intelligible to people who are living in 1791. Um, and so looking at, at, at um, tradition at that level of generality, I think is one way in which um, certainly litigants can work within Bruin's framework um, without having to say goodbye to all uh, kind of reasonable gun regulations. Thanks so much, Jake. If I could, um, I, I agree with everything that Jake said, but I, I guess my, I want to add that the courts are only one piece of the legal system and, um, and of public policy. And so, um, for example, we have a lot of legislative activity going on in uh, regarding firearms right now on the state level. We have um, a number of states that since Bruin have um, enacted more restrictive gun laws, um, a lot of more restrictive gun laws. And we have some, a number of states that it's usually a red blue state, a red state blue state thing that have liberalized their gun laws. Um, for example, doing away with um, concealed carry permits altogether um, and so forth. And so we, to from the fact is, Whatever the court decides, um, in uh, as they have to take another look at how to apply Bruin. And by the way, I'm I'm not sure that one of those concurring opinions, like the Robert, Roberts Kavanaugh concurring opinion, isn't going to become basically the rule. But uh, whatever they decide, they they stop short of taking an absolutist position. So we are going to have some gun laws, and it's. So the legislative initiatives matter, um, and there's a 
something that happens in our legal system where um, not only uh, the legislatures, but law enforcement finds ways to work around what the Supreme Court does. And I'm going to give a really quick example. Um, As you know, in the 1960s and 70s, the Supreme Court took um, stricter and stricter um, uh, scrutiny uh, or applied stricter rules to um, warrant requirements for doing police searches and surveillance and and things like that. Um, And so what happened is by the time we get to the 90s and the early 2000s, law enforcement is doing a lot more sting operations. Right. Because you just you just schedule the crime for next Tuesday and you have it on camera and you don't have to get a, a search. warrant. You don't have to worry about searching anything or reading somebody the Miranda rights or anything. We have them committing the video at the time on, on the day and time that we uh, committing the crime on the on video on the day and time we, we planned. And so um, so we we should keep in mind that there can be there's plenty for people to do and there's ways to work around whatever the Supreme Court does. And um, and then uh, the another side of this is that there's been a huge growth in the last five or 10 years in these community violence intervention programs. And so it's not just that we want to um, see guns regulated or gun laws upheld. What we really the, the goal is to reduce violence. And there's you have to approach that from multiple prongs and guns make the violence escalate the violence, make it easier and more lethal. But the violence, some of the violence intervention programs are um, doing great work. And I'm looking forward to seeing that area develop. And then I'm going to throw in a a plug here for another project I have. Um, You have to, you also have to keep in in mind that there's, um, that the free market kind of responds with the, like, insurance and background finance and the banks and things like that. So after 2018, a number of the big, the biggest national banks announced that in various ways they wanted to back away from the gun industry, divest from it or defund it. Um, And so now there's a legislative war kind of over that about whether you can punish banks for divesting, but that's happening in a lot of other areas like with sustainability and environmental concerns and so forth is um, the values are actually ahead of our legislation and are starting to affect the people that um, are administrators of pension funds and do risk assessment and so forth. And so there's there are private market responses that matter too. Um, and that change the culture that can change how many gun dealers there are in a certain um, air, part of town or in a, a given state, How who gets to be a gun dealer, how upstanding they have to be as opposed to kind of sketchy and having no credit and things like that. So um, <clears throat> all of those things matter and all of them are worth paying attention to. That's terrific. And, uh, and very much at that intersection of law and economics that, you know, so much of your work has been in to think about, yeah, what would it mean if people had to insure weapons in different ways? And what kind of other regimes that have nothing to do with the Second Amendment or are uh, not, not, not necessarily within the hold of the Second Amendment. And, and I'm not even just talking about the a law requiring gun owners to have insurance. Employers now have to insure for active shooter risks, right? The insurance companies offer policy, active shooter insurance policies. And mm-hmm. so an employer, a private school or something like that, that has their own internal private, like no guns in our workplace uh, rule, no guns in our school. I work at a school that's a private school and there's no 
guns are allowed in the school. And if we did allow guns, it affects our liability, our insurance rates. And so the market, the the market matters um, to an extent, not just what the five or six justices on the Supreme Court think. Um, and before we end, I want to give each of you a sort of opportunity to just sort of say something that maybe we haven't said. Jake, you want to go first? Sure. Um, let me say one thing on a point that Drew was making um, at the very start, and that was um, about how Second Amendment doctrine might affect law enforcement on the ground. Um, I think one, one of the things that's really important when we talk about the Second Amendment and gun violence um, more generally is um, how gun violence both disproportionately affects communities of color and how law enforcement enforcing gun laws disproportionately affects communities of color. And so there's a tension um, that we see in a lot of the briefing and a lot of the advocacy. Um, Bruin itself saw competing amicus briefs supporting different parties from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and from Black Defenders of Legal Aid um, and the Bronx Defenders in New York, one arguing that to expand the Second Amendment would decrease criminalization and would be better for Black lives. The other arguing that because um, Black men especially are predominantly victims of intentional gun homicides, that gun regulations protect Black lives. Um, and so there's this uh, tension. One of the, I think one of the best uh, um, uh, things that we can hope for the future is increased funding and investment in the community violence intervention work that Drew was discussing, because that does not rely um, on the criminal legal system to police uh, gun violence. Um, and it's immune from Second Amendment regulation because it's not focused um, on weapons or involvement with the state um, in general. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of really important we're having these discussions that we have to highlight both sides of this, um, not just for kind of every group that can be subordinated um, with guns or with gun violence, but also the ways that um, whenever we talk about gun regulations, we're talking about enforcement by the state. Um, I guess the, the final thing that that I think is something that we've talked about the whole the whole time, but which really, um, you know, honestly continues to confuse me about Bruin, and that is this overreading of historical silences. And we've talked about it um, ad nauseum, but the most surprising thing is that Bruin doesn't even say anything about this argument. It doesn't say anything to justify why we would think the scope of the Second Amendment, as understood in 1791, would be equivalent to the number of laws that were enacted in 1791, even if you think originalism is the best methodology. There's kind of no reason to think that every law that was constitutional was a law that was enacted. Certainly there were laws that folks thought were would have been constitutional, uh, but just were not enacted for a whole host of reasons. Um, so I think that is the thing that um, I hope the court, when it talks about the method, says something about uh, what we should do with historical silences, um, and at least if to justify why we should read them the way Bruin says. But I think that is the most confounding thing about the decision. Drew, what, what do you want your last word to be here? Sorry, I had muted myself. I, uh, I, I agree with what Jake said, and I want to say one other thing about the, just the Supreme Court justices themselves. I, in my opening comments, I, I said, pointed out that there's a range of views even among the conservatives on the court um, uh, about it as evidenced by the concurring opinions. Um, one of the reasons that I think the kind of the other, the prior consensus formed after Heller was that the Supreme Court actually denied cert in almost every case 
for almost 10 years. Um, and uh, my, Jake and I have talked about this. My theory about that, that is that <clears throat> the different conservative justices weren't necessarily sure that the others, even on their side, were going to do what they wanted if they took the case. So you might keep voting to deny cert um, <clears throat> in that case, because they have to have four agreed to, to even take a case. And so um, one of the things to keep in mind post-Bruin is that there's a division even among the conservatives on the court and that could, they've been denying cert in a lot of Second Amendment cases since Bruin. And um, so we're going to have to see. The one other thing I'd like to add is some of the gun cases currently going to the court are not Second Amendment cases, but are administrative law cases like the ATF's um, bump stock ban, um, the ghost gun ban, and their a new pistol brace rule. Um, they clearly, there are some second amendment issues in the background. The parties have raised them, but there's also issues about how clear statutes have to be and what type of regulatory authority the ATF has. Um, and that are also issues. And those, uh, some of the Supreme court justices have very strong views about certain administrative law doctrines that don't always, um, align up with their views about guns. And um, and so some of those cases are unpredictable as well. Well, I, I can't thank both of you more, uh, Drew Stevenson and Jake Charles, for joining me today. This is a great discussion, and it answered a lot of my questions. It raised questions, too. Uh, it's one of the many discussions we will have going into the fall, and we'll have you back uh, after the first Monday in October, especially maybe after oral arguments Um in, uh, in the Rahimi case. So thank you again so much for taking the time to join the New Books Network. Thank, thank you for having me.